My agent called, he said he got some interest in my script I'm glad I didn't tell him that I never finished it I got my cast of characters and outline for the plot I even got a famous classic case of writer's block Get it out of my head 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 Get it out of your head And onto the page Get it out of your head And onto the page Get it out of your head And onto the page Get it out of your head And onto the page Welcome to On the Page. This is the podcast that answers all of your questions about the craft and business of screenwriting. My name is Pilar Alessandra, and I'm the instructor and script consultant here at On the Page. Joining me as guests are Taylor Allen and Andrew Logan. Hello, guys. Hello. Hi. Wait, I'm still going to get this wrong. Wait. Taylor. That's me. Okay. She's pointing at me right now, and this is the voice of Taylor Allen. Andrew. And this is the soothing voice of Andrew Logan. <laughs> And Taylor and Andrew are the writers of Chappaquiddick, which will be in theaters on April 6th. Um, also, Taylor and Andrew made Variety's list of 10 screenwriters to watch of 2017, and their script for Chappaquiddick made the 2015 Blacklist. On their own, Andrew Logan has produced award-winning feature films and documentaries, and Taylor was an editor for The Edge of Seventeen, released in 2016, a movie that I loved, and The Simpsons, you know, a little up-and-coming TV a show. show you may have heard of. Maybe. And uh, together, um, Andrew and Taylor have also optioned the film rights to Jerry Spieler's award-winning book, Taking Aim at the President, the remarkable story of the woman who shot at Gerald Ford. So we have much to talk about. I want to make one uh, quick on-air correction. Sure. And that is that, How dare uh, you correct me? No, it's <laughs> uh, I'm correcting Variety. Uh, it's oh. the 10 screenwriters to watch, but there were two writing teams. So I really think it should be 12. I think that the other guys deserve the credit as much as anybody else. I think you're, I think you're right. Wait, yeah. two writing teams. So isn't that, what's 14? 12? 12? No, no, we were one of them. 10, so 11, 12. I'm counting myself as number 11 ah. and uh, my now friend Evan Kilgore as number 12 of the writing team, Franco and Kilgore. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Okay. I'm clearly not very good at math. Okay. <laughs> yes. 12 screenwriters to watch. Are you that guy who just corrects everything? Are you like... Uh, yes, he is. Yes. Okay. Says, says the writing partner. Yes. And she's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like that physicist, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, but with uh, numbers and varieties, 10 screenwriters to watch. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, somewhere we need somebody like that, I, I assume. Yeah. Well, actually, probably very good when you're doing historical, historically based movies the way that Chappaquiddick is. Now, before we get into talking about Chappaquiddick, which I, I just saw, which was great. Oh, Hi, we're getting our picture taken. Um, <laughs> uh, I think for people out there who are under 40 years old, sadly not me, um, can you tell everybody what Chappaquiddick refers to? Uh, Chappaquiddick is an island off of the coast of uh, Edgartown near Martha's Vineyard. Uh, and it was a spot that uh, Ted Kennedy went to on the weekend of the moon landing. Uh, he was there for a celebration of the moon landing and a reunion with uh, the campaign staff of Robert Kennedy, his brother. Uh, the previous year, his brother had been assassinated. And it was um, a time to remember that and a time to celebrate the Kennedy family future with uh, the moon landing. And it ended in tragedy because uh, that night, Ted drove off of Dyke Bridge and with him was a passenger 
a young woman named Mary Jo Kopechny. And uh, tragically, she passed away. And it was far too soon for a woman with a very bright future. And our story starts in earnest the moment that Ted Kennedy goes back to the cottage and does not stop to call the police. And this is this is something that, um, you know, I am over 40. I know it's hard to believe. But uh, <laughs> I grew up in the Boston area. And uh, so every time you heard Ted Kennedy's name, Chappaquiddick always went with it. Mm-hmm. Um, although, you know, like I remember my family being big Ted Kennedy supporters. Um, you know, he was a senator. Uh, what, what was his nickname? As the Lion of the, Lion the Senate. Senate. Yeah. So he was there for what, what over like 40 years, something like exactly. that, right? Um, so, you know, but it was very hard to escape this one scandal. And there were a lot of unanswered questions. Um, this movie that you wrote seeks to answer those questions. How did you, how, how did you get involved in this? How did you end up writing this? You, you know, you guys, you guys are a bunch of kids. How'd you get <laughs> interested in this and, and, and decide to write a movie about it? The producers of uh, Chappaquiddick always lovingly, there might be air quotes on that statement, uh, <laughs> refer to us as boys, 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 boys. <laughs> And you know, boys, how you doing? I do take it as a compliment because I do still have a little, you know, chubby cheek with uh, the baby face. But um, ultimately, I think that it was one of our real advantages in approaching this story was that we didn't have that um, build-up legacy in mind when we were approaching it. That we didn't know the story even existed until our late twenties. And it's really interesting, actually. Um, it was two thousand eight. And it was during the presidential primaries and Ted Kennedy endorsed Barack Obama over Hillary Clinton. And that's really like when the momentum started to change and Barack Obama pulled ahead. And it was kind of considered unexpected because the Kennedy family had, you know, a long history with the, the Clintons. And we were watching Real Time with Bill Maher. Um, Andrew and I were roommates at the time in Beverly Hills, which sounded a lot more glamorous than it was. Uh <laughs> It was the slums of Beverly Hills. Uh, But we were watching uh, Real Time with Bill Maher, and Bill Maher said, Ted Kennedy changes presidential history again, endorsing Barack Obama over Hillary Clinton. You know, Ted probably would have been president in 1972 had it not been for Chappaquiddick. And then he moves on to the next segment. He's like, new rule. And I'm like, whoa, 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 Chappaquiddick. I have never heard of this. This is a very strange word. It, like, stands right out. And so Andrew and I, you know, go to the laptop, you know, we get to the Google machine and you know, we type in Chappaquiddick and I swear we must have misspelled it because like it is a very hard title to spell and a very hard island to know the the name spelling of it unless you're really familiar with the area. And what we found was a Wikipedia page. And even though that's not the best source on the Internet, what we found was something that we never knew about. We never had any idea that a woman died when Ted was behind the wheel and it just led to a hundred questions. And the first one was to my mom. I called her that night and I'm like, mom, why didn't you ever tell me about this? Like I, I felt like something had been like hidden from me. And it ultimately is just that I think that everybody assumed that it was common knowledge, but that like a generation away from the events happening, like it had really gotten lost to the sands of time. And I think that that's one of the reasons that we wanted to write this movie was to give people our age and younger the chance to like experience like what actually happened that night for the first time. And it, it reflects so much on sort of the political scandals that we hear and become commonplace, you know, which always go along with an event and a cover up. And you really 
focus on that as well. So when you when you were uh, when you guys decided to write it, what was your process? Because I, I was watching this going, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Like your research must have been something else. It's great that you said that about uh, with these things. Often it's you know not the crime, it's the cover up because it was actually that question I think that drove the beginning of the research process. And um, we knew that we didn't want to make a conspiracy movie. We kind of figured that Oliver Stone already had a whack at the Kennedy family and we wanted something that was much more beholden to objective truth and identifiable facts. And we were really lucky that uh, the Chappaquiddick incident, as it's known, uh, is known colloquially as the most documented car accident in history. (laughs) And the reason why is that there was actually a legal proceeding um, called an inquest to discover if a crime had been committed that weekend. And the crime was exclusively about, you know, the accident itself and not about the cover-up. But in doing that, uh, Judge Boyle in Massachusetts gathered together all the, you know, key players of the event. So you have the Boiler Room girls, the secretaries to Bobby Kennedy, you have Joe Gargan, who in the movie is played by Ed Helms. He's Ted Kennedy's cousin. And then you have Ted Kennedy himself on the stand. and All under oath. Under oath, a thousand pages of court transcript testimony. And that became our Bible. That was the thing that, you know, from there, that was the truth that we were always trying to follow. And, you know, process-wise, uh, it was interesting because we knew that we needed to not make this a cradle-to-grave thing. Right, that that was right. This is know, just an event. This isn't a biopic. Right. But we wanted it to still speak to larger themes. And so even though we did read Ted Kennedy's biography, and I think very helpful Autobiography. Autobiography. Even better. Uh, <laughs> and we also read uh, a really great Joe Kennedy Sr. biography called The Patriarch. Ultimately, the meat of our story and so much of the nuance of how these characters interacted during this week was from this testimony. And I think that we read that testimony and wrote an outline and then the testimony ends up becoming our bedside reading for the next like four months as we're reading the script. And so the thing that I was joking with Andrew about earlier today, I was like, you know, it's really when you read a thousand pages of testimony for the third time that you really start to notice the nuances (laughs) of it, you know? Well, in a way, uh, you know, he gives his testimony mm-hmm. three different times in your movie, mm-hmm. and I was I was looking at that, <laughs> going like, "Wow, that's hard to do to write this all over again, and then to actually literally paint a different picture because you're showing different images with each piece of testimony." Mm-hmm. I thought that was that was really interesting. That was clearly purposeful yeah oh Oh, man it's so it's always music to a writer's ears to hear that people get what their intention was (laughs) on the page and i can't tell you how frequently you know in the editing process you wonder if it makes sense at all and like this is like when the movie's been shot and you're and like i said like you know or like you said rather uh i was an editor on the edge of 17 and like i think that movie turned out fantastic and there are days in any editing room where you're like, does this moment play? Will people understand this? Like, does that matter? And for us, one of the things that really mattered the most on Chappaquiddick was to show those events multiple times from multiple perspectives and have nuance added with each different telling and to show how the story evolved for Ted and how perhaps it 
got closer to the truth or further from the truth, depending on who you believe. And talking about process, excuse me, talking about process, when we wrote the script, it was actually, we wrote it in a chapter structure, which is different from how the final movie ended up. Um, we were really inspired by Tarantino and yeah. Glorious Bastards at the time. <laughs> oh, you and every other guy sure, your age. Sure. <laughs> and, but um, very purpose- purposefully, to your point, we in the script had a the very first time you see the accident is from Ted Kennedy's perspective. And we used his police statement that he gave mm-hmm. and um, his televised statement, like any, any other time he publicly went on record about the accident. Um, to show what his version of events were. And then we had another chapter after that, which was everybody else's sort of um, account of what happened that night. And there are a lot of discrepancies in terms of what Ted's version of events were and what, you know, the truth is. And I think that just to add to what you're saying, that like those other perspectives really were informed, you know, as we were developing the script and we realized that, Joe Gargan, Ted's cousin, ends up being a really crucial voice of opposition in his testimony against, you know, or actually it was probably intended to be for Ted, but I think that he held a lot of, you know, guilt. And when he went on the stand, instead of answering a yes or no question, yes or no, Joe Gargan... And this is a seasoned lawyer on the stand who knows how to give testimony. Joe Gargan would just, you know, speak extemporaneously and ultimately talk about things that he know that he, that he knew that he did wrong thing things that other people at the party may have done wrong and all the guilt that he had for the tragic death that happened you know somewhat on his watch well, what, well one thing i thought was interesting was you were hanging uh, a lot of the story on the relationship between Joe Gargan and Ted Kennedy you know uh, we're looking for in these kind of stories you know what's what else, right, beyond sort of the, the political, is it true or is it false, is, is what else are we learning about the relationships? And this was your key relationship. Mm-hmm. It was uh, a very tight friendship and brotherhood mm-hmm. that collapses over the course of the story because one wants to stick to a specific truth and the other does not. Mm-hmm. It sort of is saying, look, there are gray areas and we can do more important things if we stay in those gray areas. And I thought that that was interesting. You know, there isn't a love story that's driving it. It's a, it's a, this brotherhood mm-hmm. that, that's driving it. And I think that for the Kennedy family, what could matter more than brotherhood? Mm-hmm. And I always said to Andrew as we were writing this, like, if this script fails as a piece of writing, it's not the material and it's not the true story that has failed us. It's us failing these characters and us us failing these themes that we're chasing because I couldn't believe that Joe Gargan suffered a tragedy not unlike what the Kennedys suffered and that he lost his parents at a very young age and that he and his sister end up getting basically adopted by uh, the Kennedy family. And so Anne Gargan... His sister is actually uh, Ted's father's nurse, and she's a character in the movie. And it is, you know, part of my shame as a screenwriter <laughs> that I couldn't make that clearer on screen. But we, we were couldn't just, do it without it being just uh, yeah, um, without the exposition, yeah. the exposition dump. And yeah. we just really wanted to keep the story moving because that's kind of the you know midpoint and you know, the third act when we're dealing with 
the the Joe Kennedy senior character. And it was just too hard to find time for a very, very side character in Anne Gargan, his sister, to talk to her brother, Joe Gargan. And so we... And we sort of arrived at, um, you know, coming to understand that the main relationship of the movie is between Ted and Joe Gargan during the research process. When we were first starting out, that wasn't something that we had a very clear vision for. And But we, what we did know for sure was that one of the things that we related to about Ted Kennedy was that the weight of the Kennedy legacy was unexpectedly thrust on his shoulders and that he had three older brothers that had tragically died. His oldest brother was Joe Jr., who was sort of the anointed one and died tragically in World War II. Obviously, Jack and Bobby were both assassinated. And then Ted himself is left carrying the burden of the family. And then when we discovered that Joe Gargan was sort of an adopted son to the Kennedy family, his cousin, and that there was this like brother relationship between the two of them, we felt that that was... It spoke to those insanely themes. rich, um, dramatic material, given the circumstances of what happens in Ted's life at this moment. So it's kind of like the story of losing the fourth brother. So here's a guy who's lost three brothers, and then he pushes out mm-hmm. his only remaining brother. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Interesting. I, I thought, I, you know, it, you've you've done a, a lot of uh, documentary, Andrew, mm-hmm. and so when we're talking about like the difference between documentary and just just telling the story of something that happened the way it was and then creating a movie about it Mm -hmm. i think it's this i really do think it's sort of like what what did this do to the people Mm -hmm. and how do you dramatize that because you don't really know what they said Mm -hmm. right you just had to Mm -hmm. decide what that was yeah i think understanding what the stakes were for the character you know that the presidency was on the line that the family um legacy was on the line was really helpful in terms of getting into who Ted Kennedy was as a character. Um, And then that has always been sort of my North Star in terms of how do you go about telling the story and it's about what's at stake and what do they want and what stands in their way. And that's sort of what drove me while we were... Yeah, and I just want to add to that that like, you know, Chappaquiddick is really special for me and Andrew. It was the first script that we ever wrote together. And, you know, it was really my first feature in earnest. I had been writing like TV specs and stuff before that to no avail. <laughs> uh, and um, for us, the reason that we were so, you know, magnetically gripped by the story of Chappaquiddick wasn't just the intrigue and the, you know, crime aspect of it. It was really Ted as a human being. And for us, like, I remember, like, we both grew up in Dallas and, like, the Kennedy legacy looms, you know, a little sure. bit larger there. Yeah. there. I mean, they only recently took away those X's. Yeah. Right. That mm-hmm. was sort of it was so maudlin how it marked the spot. Mm-hmm. Right. But that's that's part of Dallas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I, I just remember thinking as I was growing up and watching a lot of these great movies, you know, JFK, 13 Days, et cetera. I was like, I've seen so many people play John F. Kennedy. I have seen so many people play Bobby Kennedy. Why haven't I ever seen an actor play Ted Kennedy? And I think that for us, like, you know, him being the black sheep of the family and him being, you know, the one that no one had any expectations for. Because, like, Andrew, remember reading The Patriarch and we were, like, kind of amazed that the feeling was not that John F. Kennedy was going to be a particularly special Kennedy because everyone's focus was on Joe Jr. And it was just like, Joe is the boy. 
and then JFK out in the Pacific does the most heroic thing. And the reason that Joe Jr. dies is because he didn't want his kid brother standing him up and he runs one last air mission and he ends up dying in the war. And then that's the moment that it's like, okay, now all eyes are on John. And then even then, he really wasn't very good at public speaking. He wasn't... He was sickly. Yeah. This is all uh, material that's captured really well in another variety to <laughs> screenwriter watch script, uh, Mayday 109 by Franco and Kilgore, previously mentioned. Well, there you go. We got to get them on too. Now we'll just have like, it'll just become the, the it's Kennedy It's the Kennedy show. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun doing Q&As with them. No. Um, so, so clearly you stayed interested in stuff that happened before you were born mm -hmm. because then we, you, you optioned the Jerry Spieler book, Taking Aim at the President, The Remarkable Story of the Woman Who Shot at Gerald Ford. Mm -hmm. This is something I do remember. Oh, awesome. Um, I mean, I was little. Let's be very clear <laughs> at how little I was, all right? But um, The president almost got killed again, though, so you were pretty interested. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, it was it was on the news, right? And the, and the thing that made it so spectacular was um, Squeaky Squeaky Front, was yes. that her last name? And she was uh, one of the Manson clan, That's right? That's correct. So, I mean, all those things were just, you know, oh my gosh, right? Just one thing after another. I just and, want to give a yeah. like less historically knowledgeable audience uh, a little bit of context here. Sure. And I'm going to do it through my father, who I love greatly, but I'm going to embarrass. Uh, I talk about you know this character, Sarah Jane Moore, who uh, was the only woman to ever fire a bullet at a president. The only woman to ever actually attempt an assassination of a president, Sarah Jane Moore. This, this is not something anybody should aspire to. Let's just be very no, clear, too, no, no, no. about this. Uh, not, not like, trying yay, to give anybody yay, any idea. like, no, But whenever I talk to my dad, I'm like, I'm going to write this movie about Sarah Jane Moore, uh, the woman that tried to you know, assassinate Gerald Ford. He's like, the Manson lady. I remember she was crazy. It was all <laughs> Manson, right? And I'm like... No, that's squeaky from and she just had a starter pistol and that's not really like you're just making a political statement, not actually trying to kill anybody. So squeaky from is just this like side character. But that happens to happen one month before Two Sarah weeks. Jane Moore. Oh, so I have it screwed up, too. Oh, really? Oh, is that? OK, so so. Wah! No. Okay. Well, and like spoiler for the third act of uh, assassination of Gerald Ford. But like that's one of the big complicating factors in Sarah Jane pulling off her attempt okay. is that two weeks before the president almost gets assassinated, air quotes, by another woman. And thus security around him as he's going through the Bay Area is just like so much higher. It's what you call a third act complication. Ah, yeah. there you go. <laughs> Process. Thanks for teaching me that. I appreciate <laughs> it. Um, so, so again, like, you know, you just finished this movie, Chappaquiddick, just writing it. What is it that makes you so interested in, in these kind of movies? We would love to write something fictional. It is so exciting, the idea of being able to make any choice that doesn't have to be guided by history. <laughs> uh, Andrew and I have a uh, nuclear sub style deciding if we're going to write X or Y. And that means that you both have to turn your keys. And it's very often that one or the other of us might want to turn that key. And it's very hard to get both of us excited. And I think that in this particular instance, I think that there was so much thematic meat to Sarah Jane Moore's story. And ultimately, it's something that I've never seen in a movie before. And I'll go ahead and like spoil that for 
people listening, uh, you know, anybody in the development community, close your ears. I want you to be excited when you read this. But <laughs> it's a movie about a middle-aged woman um, in her 40s with children, and she sees the 1970s happening, women's lib, and she feels like she missed the feminist movement, and she feels like she missed out on a whole life not being a mother, and that in doing that, when she sees Patty Hearst get kidnapped, she ultimately feels that she has a calling to do something more than be a mother. And she thinks that the way to do that is by trying to get Patty Hearst back from the SLA. And that starts step one of a tragic journey where she gets embedded into liberal extremist groups. Does, does mental that. health come into this at all? Or is this, is this uh, because it, it seems like to go down that road mentally, it, you know, you have to be a little uh, not everybody makes those kind of connections let's just say wouldn't or, it be wouldn't it be more interesting yeah. if you had an incident of gun violence where the person wasn't mentally unstable and wouldn't that make a bigger statement okay. about how gun reform needs to be approached i'm with you i'm with you so okay. that's my that's my take on the sarah jane moore story and her sanity in terms of to get to your question about like sort of what attracts us to these yeah. sorts of stories i think Taylor and I, um, when we talk about character things, when, when we think that characters who have inherent contradictions is something that really we gravitate towards, that the thing that would make a character succeed is also the thing that is their downfall. Um, and that's certainly true of Ted Kennedy. Yeah. And uh, as, as we'll be able to show, I think it's very much Sarah Jane Moore's arc as well is that her greatest strengths are her greatest weaknesses and she is her own biggest enemy in mm -hmm. the story. And I love that. I just, yeah, I, that's I, what would just like when we click on that and find out what that is about a character, that's when we, our juices get flowing and we're just like get really excited about something. Now when you're doing something like this, uh, Jeff Quiddick and this, and this film, um, how much time should you realistically devote to research because you can stay in research mode forever. Do you give yourself some parameters or do you say, look, we have to get this much done. We really have to back up our facts in this way. What's we, your process? We're still learning that. I, I think just the other day was giving Andrew the anecdote about uh, M. Night Shyamalan on the village. And he said that he really like overdid it on the research and really like ended up in a bind where he was just like, really way too invested in like some of the period detail and some of the, you know, nuance that would never end up on screen. And I think that we got really lucky on Chappaquiddick because naturally as storytellers, we knew, okay, we don't want this to be a cradle to grave. What's the time period? And we said, this is going to start on a Friday and it's going to end on the very next Friday. So then we only needed to be experts about seven days. <laughs> this is genius. <laughs> and so then the next script that we wrote, all right, like we're going to do the exact same thing and it's going to be a month and a half of research and we're going to like, blah, blah, blah. And it ended up that movie was in some ways covering 43 years of a location and that there were many people that came in and out of it and all of them had interesting stories. And I think that like two, three months into the research on that, I was like, we just need to like lock in because there could be, you know, years of research about this. And I think that uh, it's really important to start outlining as soon as you know your central character and your story 
and then let the research just inform as you outline. So what is your process, your writing process, like from breaking story through the end, especially because the two of you live in different places, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. um, you live in Austin. That's correct. Yeah, And, uh, and Andrew lives in, in Los Angeles, right? Uh, Taylor lives in Los Angeles. <laughs> oh, I just did it again. You know, here's, I think it was just for you. You know what it is? Is like, see? See that? Yeah, yeah. We've got so, arrows pointing right, at now us I've now. Got arrows. Just for the record, <laughs> Sorry, Andrew, you're not the only one. <laughs> also confusing is that both of our last names could be first names. I know. So no. people will call us different all sorts of different names. Alan Logan, <laughs> Taylor Andrews. I have, a, I have a name issue. I don't know what my thing is. So, Andrew lives in Austin yeah. and Taylor lives in Los Angeles. So, how do you write together? Uh, we write over the phone. Uh, it is like for writers that are very in love with technology and that like our main source of distraction i.e. today instead of writing we tested HomePod to see if HomePod sounded better than Sonos and that was like an hour of our day. Um, <laughs> HomePod one. HomePod one. This is the Apple speaker. Uh, I was getting a look that couldn't I couldn't determine. But um, yeah, even though we're very like tech savvy, we ultimately do it super analog over the phone and we don't do anything special. Like a lot of people are like, do you Skype? Do you look at video? And it's like, no, just like AirPods walking around the room talking. But uh, the techie thing that we do like is we use Google Docs. And the reason Google Docs is our choice over other really great you know, options is because you get two cursors and you get a live look at like what the other person is doing at all times. And then that way, like I can spill down a lot of ink you know, digitally on the page and Andrew can be like revising and like plussing things that I've done. And then I can like just be like focused on like that one line for like 20 minutes and he's doing great work right above me, but I like am seeing it. <laughs> and if I see him like, you know, on something, I'd be like, Oh, you should do that. Put a comma there. Now I'm back to this line. Is, is it still in a script format? Or are you talking about the outlining process? Oh, that's in script and outline on some level. Um, yeah. the script, uh, we're really lucky that, um, John August, the screenwriter created a screenwriting language where you can write anywhere in plain text and i can't remember which one it is is it fountain or highland highland is the app fountain is the language yeah so fountain is this like thing where you can basically just like capitalize a word and that's like a character's name and then like whatever's underneath it is dialogue and it's just like so simple to just like always have it you know i can write in the notes app on my phone and then just copy paste it into our google doc and then it's ready and then as far as the outline to your point I think that that I would say we usually only have one person typing yeah, and the other person is like mostly pacing around the room. Uh, and Andrew is always very quick to point out, this is my favorite part of the process because uh, yeah. breaking story is really fun and it's fun to like be able to be like really pie in the sky and like, you know, do anything, go anywhere, even though like it is based on research for most of the stuff that we do. Um, but like the actual day in and day out of screenwriting on the page, like there are some mechanical elements of it. And let's, you know, bring it back to Chappaquiddick. It's such a good example. One of the reasons why I think the Chappaquiddick movie is a good idea for a movie is it's something that you have only read about. And it's very, very visual and hard to understand because when you hear Ted Kennedy, instead of taking a like curved left turn, he took a hard right turn onto a dirt road that was unpaved down Dyke Road. And it's like, what does that even mean? Mm -hmm. What does that look like? And it's like, when you shoot it, you can finally see and you can experience like, 
oh, look at how much bumpier the car is. And look at like, you know, he really must have known that he was not on the right road. He had been on the road earlier. And we were just to interrupt. We were really fortunate to actually shoot at the actual intersection. Wow. Yeah. Wow. But as a writer, what I'm saying in terms of the mechanical part of the day in and day out of it is like it's our responsibility to capture on the page exactly what we're talking about in very detailed words that like a crew can sort out what we were talking about but also have a lyricism so that it doesn't just feel like a you know mechanical document. And that I think is like why we love outlining more is because it's just like you're jamming and it's like music, but like screenwriting is very much like hard labor, cutting wood, measuring twice, cutting once. And then the great thing is, is that because it is creative, that even if you've done three like mechanical scenes about like what the wheels are doing and like what the bridge looks like, that then you can like say, you know what? We don't know enough about Joe Gargan and we don't know that he's not just Ted Kennedy's cousin, that he's really more Ted's brother. And that's why like not even in the outline, we have a scene where Ed Helms, Joe Gargan is sitting by a window with one of the boiler room girls and he's kind of half flirting with her and you know she's interested but not that interested. And he's talking about you know, Bobby taught me how to sail and she can't believe this because it's like, you're not a Kennedy and you were sailing with Bobby Kennedy. And he's like, yeah, we were brothers. And that was not in the outline. And I remember it was something that like we finished the, the work for the day and Andrew's in a different time zone, like he said. And it's like, yeah, 1 a.m. where he is. And I'm like, uh, you know, I got an idea. And I just like start clacking those keys on that Gargan thing. And when you woke up, we had like half-assed ideas on like what that might be. And you're like, we need this. This is good. Let's finish this. And so it's really but good. But also, if I remember the scene, it, it it ends with her saying something like, well, you don't, you don't look like Jack, mm-hmm. right? Like you don't look like you don't really you don't look, look like, like a Kennedy. Yeah. And it beca- it's like this total diss. It's mm-hmm. the a much debated line. I like it. I, I love I really it. Like we it. think it's great. I, yeah. I don't mind. Spoiler alert. We like the script. Yeah. <laughs> I don't mind saying that I really like it, but it was hilarious to me how many people on set felt like it was the meanest thing a person could possibly say. Well, good, because that <laughs> that's supposed to show that this guy is never going to completely be a Kennedy. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons why, you know, he's he's sort of treated like the poor stepchild. And then he, you know, he, he, he has this moment mm-hmm. again. I'm not going to spoil it anymore. Um, so so you mentioned outlining. It's so funny. Most people go the other way they say that the writing is the freeing part and the the outlining no is way. you know so you must outline then you guys as in a in a very free form way and and also how meaty are your outlines super they're, meaty they're really media they're probably like you know between 14 and 20 pages okay um so with the writers guild which we are very fortunate to be a part of um like the outline is its own step uh, and so like, you know, we talk a lot, you know, in meetings and other things about like, we're super outline people. We love to outline. That's like what we do. We're like, Oh, cool, cool. And so like you start a thing and they're like, uh, so did you do the outline? They're like, yeah, yeah. We're like pretty much, you know, there. Can we look at it? It's like, honestly, the way we do it, it's not even going to make sense. To yeah. You. It's like a line. It's like a line of dialogue. And then it's like, you know, like two words that like tell us what it is. And so the writing is like mostly in our head at that point. 
and, but, and there's like shorthand, like, you know, oh, jokes that we have between each other that yeah. like would be in there. Yeah, it's a lot of Seinfeld quotes that I know what it means. And like, you know, <laughs> to reference the nuclear something, it's like, turn your key, Mora. Turn your key. And like, I know that that means nuclear sub. That means that two people are having like a stalemate disagreement. But why would turn your key mean anything to somebody yeah. else? You guys must be really good friends. Yeah, we are. We are. Taylor was uh, best man at my wedding. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Another thing too about the outline process and kind of going back to a question you had earlier about how much research you should do. Like we, we typically know before we start something like these are like the books or the things that we need to read to feel like we're covered. But then sometimes we'll get, we'll be outlining and we'll get into a disagreement about like how to do something. And then we'll have to go research it. And a good example of that oh, yeah. quick, oh. was we, I don't So brutal. I I'm pretty sure I know what you're going to say. And well, this I is like hear what you the say. low point of writing Chapa is what he's about to talk I about. I don't know if it is. All right. Um, I want to hear what you think it is though. Yeah. Um, we were arguing about, so Joe Kennedy Sr. is a very looming character in the script. Sure. And spoiler, not the low point. So this is actually good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and there was disagreements between the two of us on how to um, portray him on screen because he had had a stroke and he was paralyzed. Uh, one half of his body was, was paralyzed. And we knew that he had trouble speaking, but we weren't sure. But we were like, we need him to like say stuff like, and so what we ended up doing is just like, well, let's try and see if we can find audio. And we found audio, I think, through the LBJ library where um, LBJ, with Ted in the Oval Office, called Joe Kennedy on, and, speaker. on speakerphone and congratulated him about something. And you can hear Joe respond and grunt and like kind of mutter out just a couple of words. And that was our inspiration. So, well, that's how it was, and that's how we're, we're going to stick to that. I love, I love how research then becomes the tiebreaker, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. I want to do this. I want to do that. Well, what do the facts say? Yeah. That's, that's cool. Absolutely. And uh, just because, obviously, I, I feel like there's a dangling chad here that people are dying to hear. Um, so the low point of writing Chappaquiddick was... 10 pages in, 20 pages in. Uh, we were okay, in the I dregs. I know you're doing. Because if you've seen the movie, you know that uh, the whole reason that Ted is there that weekend is for a sailing race uh, regatta. And here's the problem. Me and Andrew do not know a thing about boats or sailing. We're two Texas boys. I am not a boating enthusiast. I would hate to be known as a boating enthusiast, but I needed to write a scene about boats. And I don't know any of the terms. I don't know any of the lingo. And so we full stop, stop writing the script on page 20. And it's like, we got to figure this out because we can't just like write nonsense. And so Andrew lives in Austin and he goes to, I'm going to let him tell the rest of this because I don't want to butcher it. Sure. So I, um, there's a, an organization called the Austin Yacht Club, which is a sailing boat um, for sailing boat enthusiasts in Austin that literally hold regattas like a few times a year. And I called and said, hey, I'm working on a screenplay. It takes place with sailing. Uh, I need to talk to somebody, just you know, see if they can show me around on a sailboat. And they were really excited and very, very helpful. And like, we have the perfect person. His name is Bill Records. And he... Um, is actually in the film business. He's a still photographer um, on set. And we think he'd be perfect for you. So I drove out and met with him. And he took me out on his boat. 
First thing he said is, all is lost, got it all wrong. Yeah, yeah. He was like, I don't know what Redford was thinking, yeah, but I like, know a lot more the about The thing Bob- that pisses me off about sailing movies is when they get it wrong. There's no way Robert Redford would have been on that boat without a life jacket. And no serious sailor would have. I was like, yeah, but it's Robert Redford. You don't want him in a life jacket. I don't care. <laughs> he, he was super hot. Can I be the tiebreaker on that? Absolutely. Okay. I agree with you. Yeah. JC Chandor, you're the best. You know exactly what you're doing. <laughs> so... He was super generous. He took me out and then he gave me a book and he, uh, we toured around all, all sorts of like different types of sailboats. Um, I told him what I was doing. And then a week later, he's like, well, we're actually doing a regatta. I'm sailing in it. Do you want to be on the boat while we, oh, while we sail? And I was like, absolutely. No and uh, I don't Mind even, you, you still know nothing yeah, about know the nothing about technical s- aspect of like knots. I, I read that book, but it's just like about knots and like... <laughs> uh, I don't know, all sorts of stuff I still don't understand. Anyway, so the, I don't even know if you know this, but I went on the regatta and uh, it was cold that day. I didn't have gloves and I was just like miserable the whole time. I was just freezing on this boat. Um, But I ended up um, recording some video um, of boats turning uh, the buoys and... um, Apparently it's called... Tacking. Tacking, yeah. This is what this is like what you sign up for when you're listening to a podcast about Chappaquiddick is like tacking is turning a boat. Yeah. Sweet. And you know, I recorded the guys in the boat and how they talked and like the lingo and stuff like that. And then because we wanted the scene to have dramatic purpose, like we always knew that we wanted the scene to show Ted's hubris. And based on all that, we were able to come up with what we think would be happening. And then we, what would be a way for Ted to have a lead in the race, but not be comfortable with the lead and to feel like he needed to win by a mile instead of an inch. And so that was where we came up with the spinnaker, which we found out was like an additional sale that like you would deploy at a very specific moment. And if you screw it up, it's all wrong. And that that's ultimately the argument. And that was one of the videos that I had taken, which is when they turned the buoy and they put down a spinnaker. <laughs> so there you go. Um, and the, so then we sketched out the scene. And then I met with Bill again and showed him the scene. And I bought him lunch and over chicken fried steak. He was like, "Ah, oh, you got this all wrong. They wouldn't be going left. They'd be going starboard." Da, 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 da. <laughs> uh, it was, and he was a super nice, super generous. gave him gave me a lot of his time. And um, we're really lucky that like that, people were willing to put up with us for I swear to God two weeks yeah. that we were writing that one scene. I think it's like two minutes of screen time and it was like maybe three and a half pages. And like we wrote like, you know, the entire sequence uh, where the cops find the car through Ted going to the police in a day. And it took us two and a half weeks to write this. I mean, like in my mind, I'm like this dumb sailing suit, but it's like it was really important. It was really like what I wanted at the end of the day. But like, oh, it was the most mechanical thing to learn all these things and try to figure it out. And then when we shot our first AD was an experienced sailor. And then the director's assistant um, had grew up around boats. And oh, yeah, I think that I should point this out. And this is something that like I think a lot of writers should know there's like a difference between like writing on spec and writing for a producer. Mm -hmm. And like we needed this to work because it was on spec and everybody was going to be judging us as unproduced writers. And I think that a lot of people in Hollywood know a hell of a lot more about sailing than we do. But like if we had been commissioned to write this, I 
know that I could have asked the producer, can you just like get us somebody who can like, you know, listen to us talk about what we want and they just tell us what that needs to be in writing terms and like we'd get there because I mean, like on, on set, ultimately they rewrote it for what they needed from a technical camera position thing. And then on other scripts that we've done since then, having a paid researcher, like it's like, oh, I wonder what he said in that interview. And it's like, we can get that for you and we can just look at it. And it's like, I used to just like divine that and try to hope that I was close. And then like we'd figure it out later. But it's like, no, now when you have a team, they can like inform you before you actually go through two and a half weeks of labor. Mm -hmm. So a little perk to being a produced writer now, right? You don't have to go on the regatta race. Uh, and and also, this might be why your original script was, uh, I read 195 pages. 96. That's, yeah, 96. 196 pages. Yeah. Okay. Don't forget that last page. For people who are listening, don't do that. Um, how did, so you, my, how my, did you get it down after? So you've done all this work, all this <laughs> clearly all this research, 196 pages. Any tips for people who are sitting on a 196-page script, which is probably more people than yeah. want to admit it, but but people have this. So how would you how would you edit? My Simpsons quote that I told uh, the writers at the Austin Film Festival, which is a really great writer-centric festival, they they asked me a similar question, and I said, "Don't do what Donnie Don't does." <laughs> and I, in this situation, am Donnie Don't. Do not write 196 pages. And like me, if you find yourself at page 80 or 85 and you're not quite yet at the midpoint, something has gone horribly wrong (laughs) and you really need to like reanalyze what it is you're trying to do and like back up. Um, Having said that, we wrote through it and we ended up completing the draft at 196 pages and we hated it we both read it the next day and we were like we are bad writers what were we thinking why did we get involved in this and hating life can't yeah. tell you how much we were just depressed about it and ultimately i think now we have the self confidence that our answer to that is like you know roll up your sleeves and like figure out what the story you're trying to tell is and cut anything that isn't exactly that yeah, I'm very fortunate to have really amazing mentors. Um, I was the assistant when I lived in Los Angeles to Rick Jaffa and Amanda Silver, who wrote Rise of the Planet of the Apes, wow. Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, Jurassic World. And they gave us really great advice, which was, what is your theme of your movie? Distill it down to one simple sentence. And then in every single scene, ask yourself, does it relate to that? How does it relate to that? And if you can't give yourself a good, honest answer about it, cut it. And that was, you know, incredible advice that, you know, I got when we were trying to figure that out. That is a great editing tip. Yeah. Guys. And it, it's something that we're really lucky as a team that Andrew has a producing background and I have an editing background because now we're always looking at this as like, how do you make this a producible screenplay? And how do you make it something where they're not cutting a three or a four or a six hour rough cut? and trying to get it down to two hours. And so like we really, I think, come up with those like come in late, leave earlies. And I think we like often are able to like figure out like how do you do this in like as few locations as possible and how do you like manage it in that way? 
And I think that like a lot of people seem to like automatically get that that's something that we bring to the table. Yeah. And like in, on that note, just like how many, you know, speaking characters do you have? Because I know as a producer that anytime somebody has a line that's, you know, inflates your budget, how can you? It's pretty rare in our scripts that we've got like man one or secretary. Like if they're talking, they're like a good character. Yeah. So. That makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Guys, this has been enlightening. Thank you so much. Time's up already. This is a blast. I got to kick you out. (laughs) Um, But tell everybody, uh, we said April 6th is when Chappaquiddick will be in theaters. That's correct. Um, Is there, um, do you guys tweet? Is there a website? Yes. Please follow me on Twitter. I'm desperate for followers. (laughs) I have like 300 and I want so many. I'm like the only one who likes his tweets. Oh yeah. It's so sad. Uh, I am at Taylor underscore M underscore Allen, A-L-L-E-N. And yes, I think that that handle has something to do with why I have so few (laughs) followers, but it's better than Andrew's handle. Mine's even worse, which is at Andrew underscore underscore Logan. Apparently somebody else already had Andrew Logan and underscore Logan. You guys are writers. This is what you came up with for your handle. Come on. I think it's brilliant. (laughs) Well, we're very just the facts, ma'am, in certain parts (laughs) of our lives and handles is one of them. So um, everybody follow Taylor and follow Andrew and um, and go see Chappaquiddick in theaters on April 6th. And also don't forget to go to onthepage.tv to check out the in-person classes and writing marathons at the studio, the recorded classes, a bunch of episodes of the podcast that you might not have heard, and the Patreon page where you can support the show to receive goodies. Um, if you check out the calendar on my site, you'll see a link to a class that I'm teaching in London, uh, third week in March. And right now I'm signing people up for the rewrite weekend, March 10th and March 11th here at the studio. And you guys are in the studio. This looks like a nice place to hang out with. This is for awesome. weekend, right? Great posters. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, and you know, my weekend classes, there's candy. That's Ooh. all I can say. <laughs> Do anything to get you to class. And because I love candy. Okay. So thanks again. Thank you again to Taylor Allen and to Andrew Logan Andrew over there, Taylor over there. (laughs) Thanks to all of you for listening and have a good writing week. 